Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and adult and child holistic psychiatrist. In today's podcast, I'll be talking about stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and how these stories have the power to shape our lives as well as our health and well-being. I'll talk about what makes a great story and what factors could be impacting our stories. I'll discuss a little of the science behind meaning-making and discuss how we can rewrite our stories so that they are fueled with more meaning, purpose, and hope. Before we talk about our stories, it's worth thinking about the stories we appreciate in movies or in books. Most of the stories we enjoy go something like this. We meet the main character, and through the early scenes, we get a sense of who they are, how they relate to others, and often even why they are the way they are. Then often we'll notice that they have a perspective that isn't working for them. That perspective is often too narrow. There may be themes of disconnection, feeling unworthy, playing it safe, or being self-focused. Then you see obstacles put before them. These would be obstacles from the outside that are causing them suffering. This could be adversaries, enemies, natural forces, illness, failure. It could be psychologic adversaries, such as an overpowering ego or a false self. The hero of the story eventually reaches a point where they simply can't keep doing things the way they are. They hit rock bottom, or you might say they're having their dark night of the soul. The climax is when they're forced to make a different choice. And it is at this point that it becomes clear that the only way they can survive or live fully is to choose to shift their perspective, usually to one that is larger and more expansive, one that is more about connection, authenticity, or purpose. So the story is, in short, about their transformation from what I would call their smaller self to their higher self. So to give an example of romance, or what I would call a story about connection, the lead character thinks there is a certain way love should look. They think they know what that person or that relationship should look like, and maybe they think they're going to find that perfect person and make that relationship happen. And then maybe a lot of things come up that challenge that narrow view. Maybe someone unexpected shows up that isn't who they imagined, and maybe things evolve that aren't the seamless way they think they should. Then there's some kind of suffering. In this case, the threat to that loss of connection which causes them to reconsider what is most important here, having things exactly as they imagined or being open to where their heart is leading them. Another example would relate more to vocation or purpose, and this could be someone who's on a fast track to fulfill a dream to be something they unconsciously believe will bring them fame and fortune. They keep hitting rough spots, failures, their dream is clearly not happening in the way that they're going about it. Then maybe they hit rock bottom, they're unemployed and have nothing. Their ego is no longer carrying them forward, and they have to find another way. Then an opportunity, one that is not in the limelight, shows up and they find themselves doing something that is of service to others, 
and realize that that actually is where they find joy. They also happen to find that what they're doing aligns with their abilities and natural strengths. So their perspective has shifted from themselves to others, and that shift has made all the difference. The paradox is that they are so fueled by this new perspective that they achieve not only a greater depth of satisfaction, but often the success that they were no longer striving for. So when we think about story elements, uh, one of the external forces can certainly be adversaries. And we can think about those people in our life who have brought us pain or have contributed to suffering. And we all have that person or those people. Maybe it was a family member, maybe even a parent, or maybe it was a group of kids in school. Maybe it was a boss or an ex-spouse. We can recall events in excruciating detail if we attempt to of what that was like, what it felt like, and it can bring us right back to that time and space. That's what strong feelings do. Yet, when we think about our lives, we can return to those details and we can use those moments even to explain our current struggles and why we are the way we are, for better or worse. When we look at the big picture of our lives, we can see those people differently. We can choose if in the story we make our adversaries demons who are always with us and who continue to cause suffering, and we can continue to ruminate about the past, or we can choose to make those individuals necessary adversaries. But there aren't just adversaries. In our epic tales, there are people we connect with at a soulful level. You might use the word soulmate or soul friend. How lucky we are to have a friend or two who make the world a more hospitable and lovely place. Aside from people in our lives who may bring challenge, there are also uh, events in our lives that we might consider mistakes, failures, and with those also we have the opportunity to pull back and look at the deeper meaning. What did we learn? Maybe we just learned that we could make a mistake and nothing awful happened. Maybe we learned that we were human, something we didn't realize we didn't have to run from but could actually embrace. Maybe we learned the paradox that people like us better or rather feel closer to us when they know we are vulnerable too and not the pictures of perfection. Maybe we learned that we can ask, what is the universe trying to tell me here? Or what am I being called to do? So we are wired for making meaning. We are moved emotionally by meaning in a way that hard details and reality can't move us. At the most basic level, this is what language is. We are making meaning of sounds and letters that are put together. When we read a story, basically a bunch of words on a page, we are making meaning. When we comprehend, we are making meaning. But we can also make meaning of our struggles, our lives, our relationships, and we do this through story. For those who need some science to feel okay about all this, and I say that jokingly because I am one of those people sometimes, and sometimes I'm one of those people who trust what our ancient ancestors did, in this case, made meaning. There is an identified part of the brain that is called the default mode network, or DMN, that is involved in high-level meaning and comprehension. Our comprehension of narrative-level information, 
that accumulates over longer time scales depends on this DMN. This part of the brain is activated when we daydream and when we are trying on possible situations, actions, or outcomes. So this ability to make meaning has become a big topic in cognitive science. And we know that cognition, how we think about things, changes our behavior. And that's because it changes our identity and how we think about ourselves. We can also have stories that hold us back. Later in my life, I had this story. I was always healthy, athletic, never got sick. I had everything going for me. And then I got sick and developed chronic fatigue and started to react to everything. I had told myself that I was sick. No one could help me because when I did seek help from doctors, I felt a sense of shame because they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. They thought this was in my head and expected that's how my life would be, just to manage and get through the day. But then I decided after excessive functional medicine approaches, some of which were beneficial but didn't bring complete relief, I'd have to start to tend to my inner life. I started to see what I had been experiencing as my own dark night of the soul. I started to write myself a new story, one about resilience and purpose, that this struggle would serve me and others in ways I couldn't yet imagine but had to trust. I started to see that all I was learning for myself and my daughter, none of which I could have learned even today in medical school, could someday help another person going through what I was going through. Or I could help a parent who was struggling to care for their sick child. That's a better story, or at least a story that got me out of bed more easily. So that story for me was more meaningful and changed my identity and changed my behavior. So... You might notice in some of the stories that I've been telling, and as you think about movies and novels, that part of our story is sense-making. And this is where we make sense of experiences in the past. We look for explanations. So in my story, it would have been, in part, my struggles were due to exposure to mold and high EMF. However, that's just the backstory. The more powerful part of the story is what we call meaning-making. And this is the process where we attempt to make sense of the present and future in ways that give us purpose and hope. So with sense-making, we might say, I have problems with trust in relationships because when I was young, I had a parent, because of their own struggles, who was manipulative, mean, or critical, or abusive. However, meaning-making would be to say, and because of that experience, I'm really good at reading people, I can spot a toxic person before anyone else can, and when I come across people in my life who I feel I can trust and be vulnerable with, I am exceedingly grateful. My experience also fuels my desire to be that person that others can trust. So just know that when we're making meaning, it's as if we're bringing coherence. We're tying everything together in a way that feels good in the present and also makes us want to move into the future. And I do think a lot of people start therapy and can gain a lot from sense-making and having a better understanding of where their choices and their symptoms may emerge from. But not always are they moved towards meaning-making. 
So while we shouldn't pass over our experiences that have been painful or deny our feelings, and we shouldn't miss the opportunity to make sense of things, but we can know that that is not the end point and that we can take those painful experiences and make meaning from them, meaning that carries us into the future. And I would say the same with a diagnosis story. Having a diagnosis can be very validating and help us make sense of what we've been experiencing and how we explain things to others. But at least when we are only considering the conventional model of medicine, for which the most part is about diagnosing and then treating symptoms and not getting to the root causes, then this story ends up being a very short story, one that doesn't necessarily move people forward. The flip side of the I have a diagnosis story can be the functional medicine story. And I do think functional medicine can give people great opportunity to improve their health, as I talked about, and it's part of what I do. But I also think it can provide an unhealthy story. Someone can take the story of, I have all these symptoms, I'm special, I'm unusual, I'm toxic, I'm inflamed, and I have a lot of unfortunate snips or polymorphisms. And because of this, I can't do this and I can't do that, and maybe I never will be able to. And this story can be reinforced by endless Facebook groups that we could join for all of our ailments. We could even become addicted to a quest for answers. And in these groups, we can find answers and we can find connection. But I would argue that our stories are far bigger. I think we all have stories that lie within us that are about purpose what we are here for, and that are about our unique abilities and strengths and experiences. Our health struggle could just be part of that story, but by itself, it's not a story, and there isn't an intention to grow our identity beyond that. For some, to heal means to lose connection with that identity, and in some cases, even to lose the community they've found online. I'm not suggesting we all heal at the same rate. I know for me, it was a slow process. Even now, I function very well, but that doesn't mean things are perfect. I still have days when my physiology is sensitive, but when it is, I'm less likely to dwell on it. In the past, I would have been running to find answers from books, online forums with my medical colleagues, and even looking at my genome, all of which would only add to stress. Now I go on, notice it, trust that whatever just caused that will evidence itself, that the answers will come to me, and I try to hold everything more loosely. So for those interested, I'd like you to give this a try, and this is how we can use story for a current situation. So start with thinking of something that you're struggling with at the moment, something where you may feel stuck and that you don't have the answers to yet. Think about the immediate story you tell yourself, and that may be from a very limited perspective. You may be thinking of all the reasons none of the solutions that you've come up with would work. And then I'd ask you to pull back and to look at the bigger picture of your life and considering what really matters to you, and then see what answers might start to arrive. And so I'll give you an example. As I write this podcast, I could tell myself 
There once was a psychiatrist, and she talked about the root causes of brain-related symptoms. Because the topics weren't topics discussed either in conventional psychiatry or even conventional psychology, she felt she had to do more to prove her confidence and her knowledge. And to do this, she would plow through many articles and research studies and become quite bogged down with the details and that research. So this would be a narrow perspective, something that can make the process of creating a podcast much more stressful. But what if I consider the same story from a much bigger perspective? Maybe that would go something like this. There once was a psychiatrist whose goal was to share information that she knew could help many people with brain-related symptoms. She knew that there was research to back what she was talking about and that listeners could dig deeper on their own if they wanted. And she knew that to be effective, she would have to give listeners the bigger picture. She knew that her podcast wasn't about proving herself, but was instead about getting information out to those who needed it. And it's worth mentioning here that when we shift from that narrow perspective to the bigger picture perspective, I think of it as we're shifting from our left hemisphere to our right hemisphere. And as I've talked about before, we are always using both sides of our brain But we do have abilities that lean more towards one hemisphere than the other, and it's the left hemisphere that helps us hone in on details and the right hemisphere that allows us to see the big picture. Our culture has us stuck in the left hemisphere, and we can pull back into the right hemisphere and really toggle between the two. Though we can choose how we see things and choose our perspective, Inevitably, there are still factors which will impact the type of story we may more naturally gravitate to. So first, I would say, is our biochemistry. If we are anxious or depressed or struggling with OCD, then we likely have low serotonin, and serotonin impacts how content we feel and how happy we are. But maybe we don't have a diagnosable condition, and we're dealing with perfectionism, performance anxiety, fear of the future. So lower serotonin could absolutely contribute to these issues. And two of the biochemical factors that can contribute to low serotonin can be pyrrole disorder, which I have a podcast on, and undermethylation. Our earliest life, meaning our first three years, can also have an impact on the stories we tell ourselves naturally. This really is a time when we are neurologically wired by our relationship with our caregiver or caregivers. This is when we learn that when we express a need, for example, by crying, someone will respond, hopefully. They feed us, they hold us. From that, we learn trust and we learn that we are worthy and we learn that things will work out for us. And at this very early age, our physiology and our autonomic nervous system is starting to write our story. Now, if we haven't experienced that, then our story could more naturally feel like people can't be trusted, things never work out for me, and I am not worthy. So carry on beyond that time period and into our childhood um, when we actually have more of a verbal type of memory Stories are surrounding us, and we learn through modeling by our parents. So we hear their stories about the world. Is the world a scary place, or is it a place waiting to be explored? 
We learn our parents' stories about themselves. Those stories could be limiting or narrow, or they could be expansive and hopeful. An extension of this can be our parents' stories about us. Maybe we are given a role in their story. Maybe even they've projected part of themselves onto us as the good child or the bad child or the difficult child. And over time, this story becomes ours. And to disentangle ourselves from this story could mean a threat to that connection. It could even mean an end to the relationship. The ideal is when our parents see us as separate beings whose lives will unfold in ways that they can't yet imagine. Our biochemistry, our earliest life, our childhood, and then even our adult experiences can shape the stories we may more naturally land on. We could have amazing successes or unimaginable challenges that come our way. Some we don't welcome or have anything to do with. They just happened. They are part of our story. Our culture can't help but shape our stories. If we're around people or even watch TV, go to movies, listen to songs, we take in a seeming agreement on what a successful story looks like and what a healing story looks like and what love and marriage look like. But these aren't necessarily helpful stories. Movies about romance that end at the point when the couple communicates that they want to spend the rest of their lives together rarely shows what that life actually looks like on a day-to-day basis. Couples watching that movie can be left feeling their relationship isn't like that story on the screen. Stories about success may show a failure, but they don't show failure after failure and setback after setback. Social media is full of endless fictional stories, but in this case, it's people we know. So we assume that the idyllic image that they are sharing is their life. They're not posting about the argument they just had with their spouse or that they were just demoted at their job. One way to counter some of these cultural influences certainly can be limiting things like social media, but also being more thoughtful and reflective and even critical about the movies and the stories that we consume. There are times in our life when who we are is at odds with the role we are playing in someone else's story. This can easily happen in friendships, workplace settings, and marriages or partnerships. When two people enter into a relationship, they both carry with them stories, some very unconscious. Depending on my background, I can carry the story that I am always catered to, that's just how it is, it seemed to keep the grown-ups happy when I was a child, or I might carry the story that I am invisible and the best way to avoid the drama or even the abuse is to lie low and disappear, not to say what I think or feel. Another common story is one where we may feel we're in this world alone, fending for ourselves, and that we have only ourselves to depend on, and if we risk depending on someone else, we could be hurt or disappointed. We either isolate or connect by compulsively taking care of others. With these stories, without awareness, we can keep each other from growing into our authentic selves. If we are in that dynamic, it can be hard to grow, again, because we are in a story that doesn't allow for growth. In a friendship, this could look like a charismatic friend whose story is that they are always the star and those around them are always the audience. 
If our own story is that we shine light on those around us at our own expense, then that type of friendship could be fine for a while. But again, there may not be room to grow into a healthy relationship. A common story, especially when it comes to the dynamic in couples, is when one person has the story that when problems arise, they fix the problem and they have been rewarded for this and learn this even in their early lives. However, when a problem arrives and that is the reflexive response, then there may not be room for another story. Because the only way that story can work is if their partner perpetually wants things to be fixed for them. So again, it does not offer opportunity for growth. So in a growth dynamic, both people are able to see that their own stories and the story of the other are expansive. They don't see the other person needing to fill the roles in their story. We are, however, sometimes co-creating or writing a story together, and that could be a romance, a friendship, or a partnership, or even a group could be writing a story together. But even without specific others, there is always a degree of co-creation. The idea of co-creation means that we don't have complete control over our stories, so this is an opportunity to make meaning of not just adversity or adversaries in our life, but also to make meaning of what catches us by surprise. Maybe it's an unusual experience, a strange coincidence, or a synchronicity. Maybe it's someone unusual showing up or returning from the past. Maybe something very inconvenient happens. We have a choice to think, oh, that's weird, and leave it at that. Or we can think, oh, that's weird, and ask, what is that about? Or even go farther and ask, what does that mean? Some might even ask, what am I being called to do in this situation? Or what am I supposed to learn here? If you are religious, you may already do this and have this type of dialogue with your God. Similarly, if you are spiritual and perhaps don't align with a specific religious framework, you may reflexively always be looking for meaning in the events of your life. But what if you instead feel you can't seek meaning in coincidence, let's say because that would suggest that something or someone is trying to communicate with you, and if you were to give that any credence, that would challenge your rational way of approaching the world, because after all, you can't prove any of it, And you can't prove that the universe or a god or some universal force has any particular interest in your life or days. But what if you don't have to believe anything to still reap the benefits of what I am calling meaning-making? And again, we have a part of our brain that exists to do this, and it seems part of our human nature. So... If we aspire to toggle back and forth between the right and left hemisphere, we can live in that paradox of not having to have proof and still reaping the benefits of expanding our wonder and meaning in our life. This is not unlike having a gratitude practice where there's been a great deal of research to show the impacts on our health and well-being and thus our survival and the survival of our species. 
A gratitude practice does not require believing someone or something gave you what you are grateful for. And still, it is able to have all the physiologic and psychologic benefits. So my intent with these podcasts is not to convince anyone of anything, but I do intend to offer ideas and in some cases a gentle encouragement that people try to access parts of their brain that our modern culture would have us leave dormant. So these are all right brain tendencies, and when I'm doing this, I'm not allowing my left brain, which has been working overtime, step in and ruin the party with its need to explain or prove. I give myself permission to let my mind play, to have wonder and awe, and to embrace the mystery of life. And then at other times, I let my mind balance my checkbook, pay my bills, set goals, and set a schedule. So I just want to emphasize along these lines that a great question that I think can always help us with our stories is to ask, what am I called to do in this situation? And again, it doesn't matter who we think is calling our God, our soul, the universe, a group of neurons and part of our brain that exists so we can make meaning, and it exists because it improves our well-being, just asking that question shifts our mind to the bigger picture and shifts our physiology. More often than not, our stories are told more by our small selves than our big selves. We can think of our lives as little stories or as epics. You might remember the movie The Big Fish. This was about a man who was dying and recounting stories from his life. He was telling the stories to those at his deathbed. Each story was full of wonder, heroics, and whimsy. Not only was the dying man delighting those at his deathbed, he was delighting himself. Another example that I think about is... Jackie Kennedy, after the death of JFK, she mentioned Camelot in an interview. So this idea of Camelot was never talked about when JFK was alive. It was something that she made reference to after his death. She had had a tragic loss and was needing to make sense of what otherwise could have felt like a meaningless role she and her family and her husband had filled as a first family. She was masterful at storytelling before and after his death. This storytelling, in her case, the use of Camelot, gave meaning and purpose to his life and their life as a family at the White House. You'll also see this with the parents of students killed in Uvalde, who are wanting to share their children's stories and what their aspirations were. And their hope is to inspire other children and in that way make their child's life more meaningful. And by doing so, give them something to hang on to as they endure unbearable grief and loss. So I'd like to end with a story, and this was when I was in college at the University of Texas in Austin, and I was volunteering at the county medical examiner. My own identity at that time was that I wanted to be a pathologist, and one day the coroner who was bringing in a body of someone who had been killed took some time to ask me about my interest and what I was studying in college. 
Keep in mind this is someone who thinks about the brevity of life on a daily basis. As he left, he said, Never forget that it's your hyphen to do with whatever you want. Excuse me, I said. Seeing that I was interested, he stopped and went on to point out that while we have no control over when we come into this world and when we leave, which are marked by the dates on a tombstone, we do have a say in what we do with that hyphen in between. He wanted to remind me to use my hyphen well, to be thoughtful about it, to make a great story. That's what I hope you're left with from this episode, to remember to use all of your hyphen, not just the stuff that comes easy or the moments of bliss, but the challenges, the adversaries, and all those things that inevitably help us grow. And remember, a good story isn't when the main hero becomes more perfect, it's when they become more human, more compassionate, and more connected to their true selves, which then allows them to become more connected to others. If you think this could be helpful to someone else, please consider sharing. And if generally you think this information is helpful and want to help me get this out into the world, please consider sharing, commenting, liking on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram. I do have a website, CourtneySnyderMD.com, where I address root causes of brain-related symptoms, and you're welcome to subscribe there if you'd like to be notified of future podcasts. Until we connect on another podcast, take care. Bye-bye.